Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in. And we've got a lot to get through in our time together because, well, a lot has happened and we've got loads more of your brilliant questions. Before all of that, my reflections on some of the bizarre things going on. Thank you those who attended the show at Greenwich Theatre on Saturday. It was great. First time the theatre had reopened for a live show with an audience, socially distanced audience, for I think it was six months. So it was kind of a great sense of excitement, really. Nothing to do with me, just that the thing was opening. And it was good to see people in an audience again. I've done three now in the space of, oh, it was in the space of seven days. And it felt great. I mean, it's weird because the theatres don't know whether they're going to be allowed to stay open. Some in the audience are a bit wary, although I have to say, the the three places I went to, which was King's Place in the main hall, the Rope Tackle Art Centre in Shoreham, which is one of my favourite smaller venues, and the Greenwich Theatre, they've all done incredible work to make sure it's, to use the term, COVID safe. Uh, the social distancing was very cleverly regulated. Masks were warm, which of course is weird for the audience and for me looking out into... Uh, I got an email from someone I've known since I was one month old and he said I was putting my hand on I had no idea he was in the audience, didn't recognise him with a mask on anyway. It's all weird, but they really went out of their way to make everything safe. Um, and so I hope people who did go felt vindicated by going. I say, forget about me and what I did. Although it was great. Well, for those of you who weren't there and who didn't listen to the live streaming from King's Place, I think it's still available, by the way. If you go on the King's Place website, you can get a ticket and still watch it. I mean, if things have moved on a bit since then, that was the first one I did. But anyway, just to summarise, you know, I get the audience to make predictions, usually wholly unreliable. The reverse normally happens. It was quite interesting. I asked all three audiences whether they predicted Boris Johnson would still be Prime Minister by the election in 2024, assuming it's 2024. And by big majorities at all three venues, the audience predicted he would not be Prime Minister. But then we had quite a good discussion about who might replace him. And to my surprise, it wasn't Sunak who the audience thought would be the most likely successor. Again, in all three venues, they veered more to predicting Jeremy Hunt as somebody who is safely out of this cabinet and therefore not directly associated with some of the things that have been going on in recent months. So anyway, I merely report that, those historic predictions, which means this, Boris Johnson will lead the Tories into the next general election. It won't be poor old Jeremy Hunt because he was the favourite uh, in, in the predictions, therefore they're always wrong. The other thing I asked them to do was to predict whether there would be no deal or a deal on Brexit by December the 31st. And it was interesting. Eight or so days ago at King's Place, by a majority of 52 to 48, that deadly percentage divide, both in the hall and watching live on the streaming of that event, they predicted no deal. 
by that 52-48% margin. About the same when I went down to Shoreham to the rope tackle. But there had been a swing by this last weekend at Greenwich Theatre, and it was a complete 50-50 divide. I thought, who, I thought we might have to have a recount, we might have to have another referendum to get this sorted. 50-50, deal, no deal. So a slight swing towards a deal. Unsurprising in the sense that since those earlier shows, Number 10 briefed to their favourite columnist, James Forsyth, that they were optimistic about a deal. There wasn't, it wasn't entirely clear how they thought they were going to get the deal or where they were going to concede, but there was this optimism. The EU read that, in effect, note from number 10 with a degree of ambiguity I pick up because, again, they note the optimism from the number 10 side, but they are still unsure precisely what form the concessions will take. But that Johnson tormented by thorny paths whichever route he chooses to take on Brexit and Covid and other things. It appears he's has decided that a deal is better than no deal. And by the way, it is <laughs> for this country. A deal is better, however flimsy, and it will be flimsy, and be terrible constraints on British companies and everybody one way or another as a result of this whole Brexit saga, a deal is better than no deal, and Johnson apparently has reached that conclusion. Will he concede in the way he did exactly a year ago when he met the Irish Taoiseach and, in effect, conceded what the EU had originally wanted, which was a border between Northern Ireland and Britain? Or will, will he do something on that scale but still claim it to be a triumph because Britain is free again and leaving and all the rest of it? We will know soon enough. Anyway, those were the outcomes. Slight swing towards predicting a deal by last Saturday at Greenwich Theatre. Thanks all of you who came along. The next live one is King's Place, again in the main hall and uh, streaming around the world is on October the 19th. So I hope as many of you as possible can join me then. It'll have all changed again, so it will be a completely different show and experience. Anyway, before we get on to the questions, what about COVID and the way this is developing? I found last week so interesting on so many levels. First of all, there was a kind of almost Monty Python-like sequence where you had the two senior scientists, Valance and Witty, uh, speaking with great gravity about the dangers ahead and the potential for the rise of infections and hints and echoes from the spring when it really took off in the United Kingdom. And then you had the grand choreography of Boris Johnson, he doesn't do this very often, making a common statement, and then one of his more favoured forms of communication, the televised broadcast, so there are no questions and he just has the space to speak unchallenged. But his announcement was, as I say, Monty Python-esque in its absurdity. We heard this terrible forecast of gloom from Witty and Valance, and then up he pops to say pubs and restaurants will have to close around an hour earlier, 10 o'clock, which, as Andy Burnham, who's having a good COVID, in inverted commas, the mayor of London, uh, Manchester, has noted, 
has been counterproductive. And that was kind of it, you know, after that huge build-up. And then you had Sunak coming the next day or the day after with his latest financial settlement. And that sequence was fascinating, again, on so many levels. First of all, because Johnson wasn't sitting next to him in the Commons, the commentariat brought up on divisions between Number 10 and the Treasury, except in the Cameron Osborne area where they didn't challenge each other anywhere near enough. But normally tensions, uh, May and Hammond didn't get on very well. Although, interestingly, on kind of Brexit, they more or less came together by the end. We know about Blair and Brown. I spent my life on that saga. So when Johnson didn't turn up, the assumption was it was a snub to Sunak, that such were the tensions he couldn't even bear sitting there next to his soaring chancellor, soaring as in popularity. This does not add up as Hercule Poirot used to say to Hastings when navigating the twists and turns of a clunky Agatha Christie whodunit. Because when you think about it, if there had been a blazing row between Sunak and Johnson, they would recognise the importance of hiding it, that the need for unity ostentatiously becomes much greater when there's been an almighty split. So Blair and Brown would have those famous shouting matches and the next day, as Brown makes an economic statement, Blair is there saying, here, here, well done, Gordon, show him. And they sort of tapped each other on the shoulders at the end. Now, obviously, there'd be no tapping these days because we're not allowed to touch each other. But if there had been an almighty split, that's what would have happened. The, both sides would have got together and said, bloody hell, we better pretend we adore each other. Johnson will sit there next to Sunak, nodding appreciatively throughout. The fact that he went off to some police station suggests to me more cock-up than conspiracy. They had already fixed that meeting to symbolise the new role for the police in enforcing COVID constraints. The Sunak statement was rushed and made very quickly at the last moment, and they didn't turn things round, and off he went to his police station and Sunak delivered the statement. They hadn't thought much about it. And suddenly it became quite a story that he wasn't there and a sign that they were getting on disastrously. But then there's another twist. So, the, the, you know, there wasn't some huge bust-up. If there had been, he would have been sitting there to pretend there hadn't been a bust-up. However, you can detect stylistic differences between Sunak and Johnson's number 10. It was a very interesting photo uh, opportunity that as he left number 11 with his little box of announcements, on one side was the TUC General Secretary and on the other side the CBI Director General, both smiling with Sunak. It was a very Blairite big tent photo. It's the kind of thing he would have loved the symbolism of support from the TUC and the CBI as he went in to deliver his statement. And it is the exact opposite of the Cummings-Johnson number 10, where they just go for people. They won't like the TUC, they won't like the CBI, they are elitists, out of touch, 
preventing the economic revolution over which they would preside. They are targets rather than potential allies to symbolise a coming together. And tonally, Sunak is of that Blair big tent emollients, evidently, from that shot. And he's got some astute media advisors around him. One of them would have had the idea, I assume, and he went for it. And I can imagine Cummings looking at that and getting angry, his uh, default position a lot of the time. Yet there's another twist. It is that classic thing that I say quite often in my book on prime ministers, available in all good bookshops, totally updated with a new chapter on Boris Johnson, also online with Amazon or Audible, um, that quite often in politics, we choose to see what we want to see and not really what is happening in front of our eyes. I gave the example just now about you know, this titanic split because Johnson wasn't sitting next to Sunak. But also Sunak, because of that photo of the big tent, you know, the CBI and the TUC with him, would have conveyed an impression that he is, how can I put it? I mean, it's crew, but you know what I mean, to the left of the Johnson number 10 outfit, who would have never organised such a photo opportunity. But he's not. I mean, it's quite clear from those who know him that while he has a capacity to communicate in an adult way and who is tonally more attuned to what is required of a senior politician than anyone else in the cabinet by a very big margin, it's a cabinet of poor communicators. But what I pick up is he's to the right on economics compared with Johnson that if there were to be a big tent, it would in some respects be closer, as far as Johnson's got any developed, consistent instincts at all, would be closer to him. Because it's Johnson who is the Keynesian advocate in the internal debate on public spending. He has described himself, I mean, it's a fantasy, but he's described himself as Roosevelt-like in a speech he gave in, I think it was at, uh, I can't remember, you lose all sense of time in this mad period, was it in July? Call me Rooseveltian if you like, because that's what I am. Um, He was actually announcing about 10p of additional spending at the time. But again, it's, as ever with politics, more complicated and multi-layered than the media often allows for. So yes, Sunak, one tent, big tent symbolism, But on economic policy, as far as Johnson thinks about it clearly, he is the one who wants to invest more and recognises the importance of it. Whether he ever delivers on it is a wholly different question. But that levelling up agenda, although vague and not fully delivered, and incidentally, again, what a revealing phrase, levelling up, not redistribution where you take from some and put it elsewhere, but levelling up as if by magic, those who have received less in terms of investment and opportunity can get more without any of those up there already having to uh, make any sacrifices to get the others to level up. 
So there we have it that week. And then by the weekend, it was quite clear that those measures, well, so far anyway, the evidence suggests, is not suppressing the virus. And you have this terrible situation with students and all the rest of it. And we shall have to wait and see. It's one of those many issues in which Johnson must wake up at three in the morning. I assume he does wake up at three in the morning. He's got a baby, or so we're told. And that baby will wake him up, I assume. I know the baby and the girlfriend have been elsewhere on holiday recently, but you know what I mean. Three o'clock in the morning is the time of maximum anxiety for all of us. And as he reflects which path to take on COVID, health, safety, Getting the virus level below one, the R rate below one. Or does he do, as Sunak appeared to suggest, we need to live with the virus and tackle this sense of fear? Which is it? Let the economy get going again or further measures? And clearly he dances around this with a degree of uncertainty. There are these huge political constraints A lot of this parliamentary party are clearly on the libertarian right. They don't like people being told what to do, even though the scientists are still suggesting, on the whole, from the ones I've heard, I know there's a dispute within science, that further measures are needed and just kicking people out of the pub at 10 o'clock all en masse um, is not the measure that was going to deal with this. So my sense is he will have to do more. He won't like doing more. But that is, once you've started, that is surely the route that you continue on, however thorny. Brexit, COVID, epic challenges for a leader of absolute clarity of thought and appetite for work and all the rest of it. For Johnson, it's overwhelming. And unsurprisingly, There are quite a few reports coming out that he's not enjoying himself, that he's worried about money. I saw the the Guardian sketch writer John Crazy will be at a food bank before very long. His money worries are on that level. Uh, But uh, when these reports emerge from sympathetic newspapers, you kind of know there is something there, maybe exaggerated. Uh, John Major was often despairing, but not quite on the scale reported by newspapers and indeed the BBC sometimes. But that his own personal state of mind is a factor in this drama too. Anyway, that's enough for me, some opening thoughts. Uh, as ever, I've had a whole range of brilliant questions and I'm just going to draw them up now. There won't be time for Uh, all those I got. By the way, um, early on, I was deluged with questions. And I think I emailed some replies saying, I'm really uh, sorry I didn't answer them in the first one, I'll answer it in the second, and so on. If I haven't answered your questions, having promised to, please email me again and remind me, and I'll get round to them. It's just that so many are coming in, I can't remember which ones from the early batch I didn't read out. Anyway, some great ones today. And this is, we're going to begin with, forgive me, I can't, I'm, I'm going to pronounce your surname, but I think it's going to be wrong. Uh, it's Stephen McGeoch, I'll spell it, Muck, and then G-E-O-C-H. So forgive me if I mispronounce, but it's a brilliant question, Stephen. Stephen's from uh, Glasgow. And he raises a very interesting general 
thought about referendums. And I'm really pleased this has come up. Why does the UK adopt referendums as a means of making decisions on policy? The referendums, this is Stephen's thought, the referendums on Scottish independence and Brexit have shown that the electorate is willing to get engaged on the big issues, but also that it often gets confused by detail and is susceptible to disingenuous arguments about the minutiae of policy. And we have a representative democracy. This is what, oh, do you remember Ken Clark used to say? Referendum is a pop one opinion poll on one day. It can't determine policy or shouldn't. Forgive me, I can't do Ken Clark as a voice, but you know what I mean. This is That's what he said. And he, he makes some other points as well. And I agree. I mean, my main concern about it, beyond those clear points that the campaign itself on both sides, on any issue, is by definition uh, going to be massively distorted. They're not running a public education exercise. It's a campaign. It's the equivalent, uh, our political equivalent of war. They're out to win. But the other thing that I have a huge problem about with referendums is they solve nothing and resolve nothing. So to take the ones that Stephen mentioned, the Scottish referendum and then the Brexit referendum, what are we debating more than just about anything else? Scottish independence and Brexit in different forms. So even though those referendums took place years ago, they resolve nothing. And I remember in 1975 when Harold Wilson, well, as you know, I'm far too young to remember, but I know that when Harold Wilson introduced the first referendum on Britain's membership of Europe, the common market, it was as it was then known, he too said that this was going to be uh, this was going to be an issue resolved once and for all with this referendum. And within five years, the Labour Party in 19 by 1980 had a policy to pull out of Europe. So Wilson did keep his government on the road and the Labour Party together for a few years. But the policy had changed and we've been rowing about Europe ever since. So referendums don't solve anything. We should keep wholly clear of them. The question from uh, Stephen Townsley on the BBC is, this is an interesting point actually. Stephen, this is another, lots of Stevens. It's kind of getting silly. Uh, me? three Stevens so far. Anyway, he's been struck by the BBC's reliance on newspaper reviews to inform the political agenda. As fewer people read newspapers and turn to websites, it's a particularly peculiarly nostalgic way of doing things. I remember when The Independent went digital and they scrambled for an iPad to cover the front page. In a a way, the newspaper review becomes a distorting prism. Yeah, it does actually. And he points out also that the Today programme paper review is often reflected in the tone of the 10 past 8 interview on the Today programme and the quotes that get put out on Politics Live, often via the same sort of outlets. Yeah, I, I I shouldn't agree with all my, the questioners, but I do agree again. I've always thought, you know, even when newspapers were widely bought and read, by the way, I think they're still very influential, not least on the BBC. But the when the Today Program did their newspaper review, they should say things like the Conservative supporting Daily Mail or the Conservative supporting Sun newspaper in order just to clarify that what the readers are then hearing is not the summary of some distantly objective voice, but 
a screaming partisan voice and so there's that and in terms of in, in fairness to them now they do do a range of uh, websites as well and when i've gone on to do the newspaper review on the marsha they're very keen on doing website outlets as well as the sunday newspapers there's always been an issue and because they do so many newspaper reviews it means that the newspapers acquire an even greater power and influence and i think as i say although they're in trouble in terms of readership they the their influence on the way we see politics the way we choose to see politics not necessarily what's happening in front of our eyes quote from that book continues to be an issue david muir got in touch and david is now in the US. He worked for a long time for uh, Gordon Brown in number 10 and so on. He absolutely pulls me up on something which I should have added last week when I was reflecting on how if Trump loses and Biden wins, the uh, US trade deal that um, this government here is so desperate for to parade in front of us as the triumph triumphant consequence of brexit even if trump wins is in trouble because of course uh, the congress both houses of congress have to approve a deal and already have indicated that they won't do so david thank you for of course reminding and explaining that it's not just about whether Trump returns or Biden wins. It's a, it's one of many vivid examples of the um, power of uh, that balance between the Congress, the two houses of Congress, and the presidency. Andrew Bimson uh, writes, say after the oh yeah, this is going back to the chief scientist very gloomy presentation on Monday. Do you think Boris Johnson is setting himself up for further failure by outlining measures which seem to be the very least he could do? And if these measures don't work, he'll be forced into more draconian steps in a few weeks and will be wide open to the same accusation that he faced in March. Yeah, Andrew, I think I've covered most of that, but that reference to March is eerie. Quite often, it's very interesting in politics that almost like a sort of film noir, governments while being very conscious of the mistakes they've made in the past, repeat them again. It's like a dark dance where they are compelled to repeat those same mistakes. It often happens in economic policy. In the 1970s, every prime minister, there were three of them in the 70s, came in and said, pay policy will be a disaster. Then they adopt a pay policy. And their opponent says, what a catastrophe, we'll never do the same. And then they do. So Wilson opposed Heath's pay policies and said, oh, we'll have a social contract. In the end, pay policy. Callaghan said pay policy, a disaster, famously had one, which led to the winter of discontent and his fall. And there is a bit of Johnson reliving the sequence, and all of us, of course, reliving the sequence from the early part of this year where he didn't do enough and was too late and had to then respond to a virus out of control. We'll have to see. He is much more conscious now of that danger, having gone through it. And yet, as you imply, Andrew, there is this sense that he is sort of repeating that same error with this silly, if you clear out of the pubs at 10 o'clock, we'll all be safe. And one from Reuben Shaplin. Thank you, Reuben. A lot about Scotland this week in different ways, which is quite interesting. And uh, Reuben asks, what are my thoughts on Labour's best strategy for winning back some votes in Scotland? 
in terms of both taking on the SNP and making a case against independence. And Rubin's view is, it seems to me, that whilst many who want independence don't consider themselves nationalists, the independence movement is nonetheless a nationalist project. And I've noticed from talking to proponents of independence that everything is framed in nationalist terms. And no, what I, what, no matter what I say to them, I'm viewed as an English person talking down to the Scottish. You raise there quite an important point, that it is very difficult for Keir Starmer to frame an argument that will be well received from those who are now moving towards independence or Scottish nationalism simply because of who he is and where he's from. The Westminster system, the leader of the Labour Party uh, across the UK, but of course Scotland has its own separate leader. There's a sort of, as he opens his mouth, how dare he tell us when we have already decided we want to leave all this behind. And therefore, I'm going to have to be honest with you, Ruben, you've got some very interesting observations. I haven't got time to read them all out. But I do think at this moment, it is really problematic. And perhaps the best thing for him to do, Starmer, is to focus on the SNP's domestic record in Scotland. Because the moment he starts putting the case, everyone, those who've become converts to independence since the last referendum, and there have been many, are fully aware of the arguments against independence and clearly they will be put in the run-up to next May's elections in Scotland which I think the SNP will win an overall majority for which is a huge huge triumph for them but there's very limited ammunition for Starmer and this is one of his traps talking earlier about the thorny paths for Johnson Starmer has done well in many respects since becoming Labour leader but he needs votes in Scotland and seats in Scotland. How? What is the best framing of an argument? And as I say, I think perhaps it's to focus on the SNP's domestic record. They've been in power for a long time now. And independence remains a fresh and potent theme for them. But the humdrum reality of everyday governing leads to questions about their success and uh, maybe he should focus more on that and the Scottish Labour Party faces a huge challenge as well Starmer is powerless but its leader in Scotland has not done well electorally he has support up there in, in elements of the sort of Corbynista Labour Party in London but there is talk of a new leader but that leader too I mean given that every Scottish Labour leader has failed for years also faces a titanic challenge. Oh, now, uh, Torin Page is on the same theme. Could you expand your thoughts on next year's Holyrood elections? Well, I've done a bit of that, Torin, and what potentially Starmer's approach will be to the inevitable SNP majority. Well, on that, I think, and what do you make of the attempted, largely unknown attempted coup of Richard Lennon, which failed? Oh, well, he, I, I never, I don't know why I should repeat these things. Nice sentences. Thanks for the podcast. They've helped me write the conclusion of my dissertation on neoconservatism in some way. Well, I'm thrilled, Torrent. That's why I started these podcasts, so people could write essays on neoconservatism with even a greater flourish, but I'm sure it was brilliant already. Thank you very much. 
It's 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 interesting that it's a slightly different question. Starmer's approach to the inevitable SNP majority, and I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. I think there is only one approach for him, which is to accept the validity of another referendum, but to insist that the entire settlement is agreed in advance as to what that independence would mean. Now, I I know I mentioned that before because uh, Dominic Toy raises another interesting point because he said, when I raised this before, he makes the point, and it's, it's, it's a good one, that you answered a question about Scottish independence and how people would conduct it differently, and you mentioned 2014 referendum and said it was a vague idea of what would come next. But Dominic does point out fairly that the Scottish government produced a big document on its vision of what would happen next. Now, that's fair enough. You're absolutely right. They did. It raised many questions. If you remember, Dominic, it wasn't clear then about what the currency would be, certainly not in a way that got the agreement of the Treasury in London. And that, it seems to me, is the difference. If there is to be another independent referendum, it will have to be on the negotiated settlement negotiated between London, Scotland, in every detail. If there's a border, where will it be? With what implications? Uh, The currency question, everything ironed out. Obviously, the currency question would be a matter for the independent Scotland, but uh, the Treasury and the Downing Street operations have always insisted they wouldn't have the pound. I think that's now accepted. Uh, But you know what I mean, Dominic? It wouldn't just be here is the SNP document for independence. That would be part of it, um, but it wouldn't be the whole question. We are talking about another epic issue. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there are so many things whirling around at the moment. The big question of COVID, Brexit, and what the hell we're going to do with a flimsy deal or no deal. And then around the corner, related in the sense that the arguments for independence are fueled by the chaos arising from those two issues from Westminster. Next year, that's that's going to be another epic question. Now, look at the time. As you know, I, I try and do this for slow runners doing a 5k run and for fast runners doing a 10k run. And on both counts, we're well over. So if you have been running, I hope you had a good run. And if you've been listening in any other form, thank you so much for doing it. I will just remind you again of the email if you want to email. It's steverick14 at icloud.com. And as I said last week, I've been asked to spell it out. So it's Steve Rick R-I-C, then 14. So steverick14 at icloud.com. And if you are still jogging or doing press-ups and thinking, oh, I need that email address, but I can't write it down because I'm doing 50 sit-ups, I read it out at about 36 minutes into the podcast. Just to remind you again, live at King's Place on October the 19th and a live stream if you can't get there because you're watching from Tokyo or Washington, which I know some do. So there's a live stream or you can buy tickets to come along on October the 19th, socially distanced live theatre. Thanks so much for listening today. It's going to be another fast-moving week, I think, until we all gather again and we'll have loads to reflect on. Please keep your questions coming. And if I haven't answered some that I emailed to say I would be, do let me know. Thank you. See you next week.